Welcome to Talking Shop, the podcast all about Adobe Photoshop. Brought to you by learningphotoshop.cc. Here's your host, Dave Cross. Well, hello and welcome to episode 28 of Talking Shop, the podcast all about Photoshop. This week, my guest is Daniel Gregory, and this episode could easily be called Anything and Everything You Want to Know About Printing. My name is Dave Cross. I have been a Photoshop educator since 1990. That's what I do for a living. And the reason I'm telling you this is because it was pointed out to me that some people might happen upon this podcast and wonder who this Dave Cross guy really was. So that's that's me. On this episode, I chat with Daniel Gregory, who is an expert in the area of printing. It's an amazing, amazing chat. Let me tell you, there's so much information. You're going to love it. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Daniel. Daniel is the host of the podcast, The Perceptive Photographer, which focuses on the creative life and challenges that artists and photographers face each and every day. He is core faculty at the Photographic Center Northwest, where he teaches classes on a variety of film, digital, and conceptual photographic concepts. In addition to teaching workshops and mentoring photographers out of Silly Dog Studios, Whitby Island, Washington, he also has taught classes for Creative Live, Kelby One, and has been a featured instructor at both regional and national conferences. Here's my chat about printing with Daniel Gregory. Okay, we're here with Daniel Gregory, who agreed to come on the podcast and talk about some important things. It's my favorite topic, which is the world of printing. So, uh, Daniel, let's start off, give people a bit of a background, the the long elevator pitch. So it's a high building, so you've got a few floors. If someone said, so Daniel, what, what do you do what would you tell them? Well, thanks for uh, letting me on the podcast. It's uh, uh, great to talk with you, and uh, even though we're across the country, so I'm a, I live on Whidbey Island, which is just a, north of Seattle. So I'm on an I'm an island guy, and uh, I've been a photographer for probably about 20 years, pretty seriously. And then I've been doing this full time as my career for about the last five or six. And my specialty in photography is actually analog. So I came out of an analog film days and my first job in Seattle was actually Adobe Photoshop tech support. <laughs> nice. And yeah, so I was the one who called when Photoshop didn't work. And uh, so luckily I've been able to blend those two together and I love the history and, and, and of photography. So I do a lot of uh, historical processes, wet plate, platinum plating, printing, and I can mit- mix the digital into the analog. So that's a lot of fun for me. So in the world of the kind of the bucket, I, most people consider me kind of a fine art photographer because of the things I shoot ultimately end up in kind of some of those historical processes. Sure. Um, I'm also core faculty at the photographic center, uh, Northwest up here in Seattle. And then, uh, so a photo educator is kind of my other big, uh, iron in the fire. So it's kind of fine art photography and, um, or kind of creative fine art photography and, and photo education is kind of the, the big thing I do. And when I became a full-time photographer though, like before I had that and had a nice tech job, I didn't photograph a lot of stuff, but I, I now do headshots and everything but a wedding, basically. I'll talk about <laughs> photographing. Nice. So obviously the listeners can't see, but I can kind of get a sneak peek into behind you in this studio. It looks like all sorts of goodies with the printer parts and all kinds of things in the background there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, for, for those of you who can't see, behind me is a big gray curtain uh, on half the my studio, and that's my analog darkroom. And then the other half is all the digital space. So nice. all the I got you know four Epson printers and all that for the 
for the for the digital printing, and then the on, behind the curtain is the magic of the analog. <laughs> behind, <laughs> behind the curtain. So uh, a number of episodes ago, I did an interview with Glenn Dewis, who was um, telling us about his amazing project he's doing in the UK, where he's going around photographing veterans from World War II. And part of the talk was how he kind of rejuvenated his interest in printing, because like many people, he'd kind of I think given up because printing on your own printer can be frustrating if you're running into some challenges. And he mentioned some of the the frustrations he had had. I'm sure you talk to a lot of people in through your workshops and stuff. What are the most common problems or challenges that you see people who are who have been frustrated with trying to print that, that they've encountered? Now, that's a great question. And uh, before I answer it, I do want to say that everybody asks me, and I mean, and I teach dozens of classes, dozens of topics. And the one thing comes up is I want to be a better photographer. And what's the thing I could do to do that? And my answer is always the same. It's print more. Uh, printing is the foundational thing that will make you a better photographer because it closes the loop. You can't edit the print. Once it's done, you really have to make some decisions about what the quality value is of the image. And so the reason I bring that up is even though it's frustrating and we run into problems, it is always work, worth working through the problem to actually get the the, the print done. Um, the biggest thing I hear up front is that the print and the screen don't match. That's the number one thing that comes up when people start printing. And, and I'll talk about that in a second. I think after that, we fall into some things where like, uh, you hear people say, oh, the nozzles clog on the printer all the time, or um, it's expensive to print. That's the other one I hear a lot is it's expensive and it wastes a lot of ink. And Nozzles clog because of two reasons. One, that it dries out or it gets clogged from materials on the paper, but printers want to print. So the people who say, oh, my nozzles clog, ask them how often they print and they'll be tell you like once a year, twice a year. <laughs> no, printers want to print. So if you're running and you have a printer, just print more and that'll fix a lot of that problem. But the, uh, and the cost, I always laugh because if I told you I could make you a better printer for $100 of paper, the average photographer would rather go buy a $5,000 camera body than a hundred dollars. <laughs> so, uh, so that little piece is there, but the big one, the big one is my prints don't match the screen. Right. And the, the big piece if people took away one thing to remember is that the print is always correct. And the, what I mean by that is the printer is the dumbest part of the entire process. It is handed some information and it spits out whatever it was handed. And so we actually call it, it's called a default device or a dumb device because it just, it has no brain power behind it. And so when the prints don't match, if you assume the print is correct, you then know now the problem is actually with my monitor or my screen or the software. And that lets us troubleshoot things a little bit better. And so to come back into the, the screen and say, okay, what doesn't match? Um, in many cases, it's because we haven't calibrated the monitor. So this is the other little piece. You got to spend uh, somewhere between $150 and $250 to get a decent calibrator for your monitor. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to work perfectly. So that's the other one. Just because you calibrate the screen and the print, it's not going to be perfect. But the screen calibration at least gets us to a known state. Sure. And that's the job of the calibrator is to say that when I look at this color red, I know what this color red is. And then I know how to translate that from the screen to the print. So that's that's the, the big piece. And people miss that. They don't think it's that big a deal. And they're like, it looks great on my monitor. Well, Apple has spent, and, and HP and Dell and BenQ spent 
millions of dollars of research to make sure that when that monitor first turns on, it is as bright and sexy as possible. Right. But that doesn't mean it translates to the print. It's funny you say that because years ago I was working with a company and we did a lot of work with Empix and they asked if I would record a video on calibrating the monitor. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting because I've never actually done it. So it'll be me kind of like live showing how I went through the process. And one of the first steps in this particular, I think it was, I can't remember, I think it was like I1 or one of those yeah. type of ones where it walks you through all the steps. And it was said that one of the first steps was first change your physical brightness on your monitor. So these two things, gray boxes match. And I kept going darker and darker. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, I, it was like, it really kind of surprised me because as you said, you're so used to that bright, vibrant look that when it was telling me this is the brightness you should have, I found that probably for the next almost week, every day I walked in my office for my monitor, I was like, oh, it's so dark. Yeah. But then my prints were so much closer to matching just from that yeah. without even worrying about all the other calibration side. And I think the challenge is we spend so much of our life also looking at videos and, and web graphics and things where you want that bright vibrancy that our eyes get used to that. Yeah. And, and that's not what we really want to be seeing when it comes to preparing for print. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's you know, like when people say my prints are too dark, it's because your monitor is too bright. So yeah, that <laughs> thing you described, like that's, and people will call me and email me and they'll be like, my prints are too bright. And I'm like, your mon or my prints are too dark. And I'll say, your monitor is too bright. And they're like, no, I turned it down like halfway. And I'm like, <laughs> keep going, keep going. And the, the challenge in a high-end professional environment is you've got a, that, that number is not set. So depending on the ambient quality in the room, you may be at, hundred, you know, when you're in that I one or you're in data colors profiler, it'll say, do you want 120 lumens, 100, 90, 80? You have to do a little experimentation because depending on how bright your room is, that number changes. Right. Um, but it's always darker than you think. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's, it's, it's always dark. I also, I, I do remember, and you probably remember this many years ago, and I want to say it was probably around Photoshop four. There was a separate little book that came when there were still books and manuals that talked about calibrating. And it almost seemed like a bit of a joke as it said, first work in a room with no lights, no natural lighting. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> so you want me in a cement room with no windows, <laughs> but they were kind of painting the scenario of the ideal room for color proofing and stuff was, you know, no light that would change. And then they wanted you to get special light bulbs. And then once you had the light set, put tape over the, the dimmer switch so that no one would come in and change the lights. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, light, yep. well, that sounds like a good concept, but on how much can the average, so that brings up a question, what the, the, the average photographer who wants to to go through this process, what sort of things should they be thinking about? Like, is it as simple as where they position their monitor relative to a window or things like that? Like, what can they do without going full blown, you know, dark room with no natural light? What what kind of strategies can they use? Yeah. So one of the ones that I uh, and so my studio actually has pretty big skylights that I have covered with some that I can cover and uncover. So I have a lot of a lot of light at certain times of the year uh, in my studio. And so I go through this exact problem of like, where do I put the monitor? How much light hits it? And the, the couple of things I look for is I don't want any glare on the monitor. Um, so I don't put it so it's like 
sideways to a window or at 90 degrees to a window. So window light comes in and hits a glare on the monitor because then it's pretty uneven to see. And then I, as much as I love to look out the window, I don't like to backlight the window because mm. my eyes can't make the contrast adjustment between the backlighting. And then, so usually what I like to have is if you can be without direct light here in the window. So like if I had a, a, a room and there was a window, I'd want to be on the opposite side of the window with the monitor kind of at 90 degrees to the window. So it's getting some ambient light, but not direct harsh light. And if I am, if I can't get that because of the size of the room, a monitor hood, which is just a little mm-hmm. thing to go over the monitor to keep the glare from hitting the window is great. And some of the monitors, they sell them, but I, for years, went and got foam core mm-hmm. and just cut a little hood out and taped it to my monitor. It wasn't pretty. Sure. But when I was doing photo editing, I would I would slide that over the monitor and get that to keep the glare off. Um, and for me, that's been the big one is the monitor hood lets me have a little more flexibility because it's controlling the straight light that's coming into the monitor. Oh, that's good. The last other one is I try to time my photo editing like for actual print color work to be at the relatively same time of day or in the evening when there is less daylight ambient mm. light and I can control the light a little better. So I'll do all of the my importing and kind of early editing maybe in the daytime, but when it gets to that fit and finish editing, I'll try to do that at the same time every day or in the evening when I know that the lights more controlled or more the same sure. from day to day. It makes sense. And 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 I think part of the one of the many challenges for the 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 non like someone who's not doing well, let's just say they're doing their own printing and they want it to be really good, but they have to balance that with, for example, I remember being at a trade show back in the day where some company was actually trying to sell viewing booths yeah. where you would put your print into this viewing booth so you'd get a better match with your monitor. I'm like, but you don't hang a print up on the wall in a viewing booth. So like I, I get the concept, but it but seemed like that was a little overkill for, I mean, I, I get it if you're doing like catalog printing where, you know, everything has to be spot on. But if you're just trying to get to that point of saying, I want my prints to match what I am seeing in Photoshop, that that part seemed like a little bit (laughs) too much to me. Absolutely. And that's actually for uh, a completely different purpose. I mean, I have one of those. It's funny you say that. I literally have one of those viewing booths sitting next to my monitor Um, (laughs) and it's for high end color calibration. So I make custom paper profiles. I do proofing for things and part of my business is to do some of that for people. So I have that booth for that accuracy. I don't ever use it for my own actual photography. It is literally a low level, low level piece. And I, what I love about what you said is I think that's the other piece about when you start down the road of printing is it's so easy to get enamored with all of the super high end stuff. But at the end, really what we want is a beautiful looking photograph. Right. And so, yeah, you, you need some, you need to calibrate your monitor. You need the right paper profile so that those two things can talk to one another. But all that other stuff is things that keep you distracted from actually getting the work done. Right. Um, and the other one is to your point of the light, like those viewing booths are for 5,000 Kelvin. Cause that's the temperature that everybody's agreed to do color rendering with, but household lights are to 2,900 or 3,500 Kelvin and daylights 5,500. And, the print will change based on the light that it's under. Mm -hmm. You take the same photograph and walk around your house. You'll be amazed at how different it looks. Sure. So yeah, if you make it sterile and perfect for the lab, it's not going to look good in the house. So (laughs) yeah, you got to, you got to print for, for what looks good there. So talk a little bit more about the, the print 
uh, paper profile because one of the things in discussion with Glenn that that really turned his world around when it came to printing is when he was given a calibration kit that allowed him to calibrate for the type of paper he was printing on. And for him, he said that made all the difference. Like monitor calibration helped, but it still didn't feel like he was that accurate. But as soon as he did started doing profiles for this type of paper, it made a huge difference. So maybe you can explain a little bit about that kind of process and, and how that can help. Yeah. So the profile, um, which we have, every device in the system has a, a profile. So your camera has a profile, your monitor has a profile, and then the paper and printer ink combination has a profile. And, and what's contained in that profile is the gamut of color. So the volume of color that each individual device or paper ink combination holds and the relative position of those colors in space so that when colors move from the monitor to the printer they're all in different locations and anybody who's ever done photoshop and assigned a profile srgb and then does pro photo the colors actually change because they're mapped in different places in space so the job of the profile is to actually tell the color management engine this is the color i have and this is where it lives. And it's unique to the printer and paper combination. And in theory, all printers are equal. So if you buy a Epson P800 or a Canon Pro 1000, in theory, those are identical as they come off the assembly line. And so what the, cam the manufacturers for paper do is they go in and print a color chart. So they print hundreds of colors that they know what that color is supposed to be. And then they measure that and then they build the profile that says, oh, when we send this color to the printer, it turned it into this color. And then they make the correction in the ICC profile. So that profile basically makes sure that the printer takes known colors and prints known colors. Without that profile, the printer doesn't know and the color management system doesn't know how to translate the things in Photoshop into ink. So it says, oh, I got strawberry red, but without an ICC profile for the paper, it doesn't know what strawberry red means. So it guesses. And then it just guesses, and that guess could be purple, that guess could be hot pink, it could be orange, because it just doesn't know what to do with that. So the ICC profile says, no, no, strawberry red is this, and you print it, and you may call it fire engine red, but as long as the red matches, that's all that matters. So in many cases uh, today, you can get a really good paper profile from the manufacturer. So if you're buying Hannemule paper or Canson or Epson, you just go to their website and search for Hannemule ICC profile and whatever printer you have, you'll just download the ICC profile and install it into the ColorSync folder on a Mac, or you just right click on it, do install for Windows, it'll install the profile. Then you select that in Photoshop or Lightroom when you do Adobe Photoshop manages color, you choose the correct paper profile. That gives you the mapping you need for all that to work. Now, in Glenn's case, when you move to high, high-end printing, those generic profiles are generic, so they're not tailored specifically to your paper print combination. So you can do, if you have the right piece of uh, hardware, um, which is called a specto photometer, you can print your own chart, just like the paper manufacturer would, and measure it and build a custom profile. And I've built hundreds of those over my career and I've built them for other people and they're not that drastically looking different. So when you bring up and actually compare the two profiles in a, in a 3D color model, they look really close. 
But what it is, is those colors in there are just more accurately defined for your printer and paper combination. So you just end up with a much more robust print. When I teach my fine art printing classes, what I tell everybody is a generic profile will get you 95, 96, 97% of the way there. But if you're looking for that last little percent, sometimes you've got to go build a custom paper profile. And there's dozens of companies on the web that do that. And so, and they will send you a little TIFF file that has nothing but a bunch of squares. You'll print that, you'll FedEx it back to them, they'll measure it, and then you'll get an ICC profile. Um, so it's a big, long process to say that we just need to be able to have that translation map. And for those of you who are real nerdy in Photoshop, what the profile actually has is the actual color value in the LAB space and then how to translate that into the other space. So it uses the LAB color model and color space to actually do that translation. So if you're awesome. in the nerd land of Photoshop, <laughs> that's, that's where that's all happening. All right. We're going to continue this uh, discussion of the love-hate relationship many people have with printing uh, right after this. It's time for the tip of the week. This week's tip is about hidden layer styles. And what I mean by that is we know most most people think of layer styles as things like drop shadow and bevel and boss. And you can copy and paste one layer style or a series of layer styles from one layer to another. But it's important to note that layer styles also include blend modes, opacity, blend if sliders, knockout, all those things that are found in that same dialog box can also be copy and pasted. So even though most people don't think of them as layer styles, they consider that as far as Photoshop's concerned. So it's really useful to know that when you want to copy and paste layer styles that includes all those other factors as well. Members of learningphotoshop.cc have unlimited anytime access to Photoshop tutorials, in-depth multi-lesson courses, as well as live Q&A sessions twice a month. Take your knowledge of Photoshop to the next level at learningphotoshop.cc. All right, we're back and we want to continue talking about printing. Now, one thing that that I found is very common, and I kind of jokingly referred to before the, the tip of the week about the love-hate relationship, but I really <laughs> find I meet people who are just like, oh, I hate my printer. I'm like, well, do you though? I mean, it's it's not really it's not really your printer's <laughs> fault. <laughs> I mean, as you said in the beginning, the printer is just kind of a dumb machine, but it's all the other process. But then the other side of the coin is people like Glenn, who you could tell he is actually just completely fallen in love with the printing process now because he's finally feels like he's in control of it. So give us an idea. If you were someone who's already owns a, a, a good printer, what would be kind of the steps calibration? Like what, what would be a good start to kind of inch your way into feeling like you're a little more in control of the process? So I would, um, first thing I would do is I would make sure all of my print drivers and operating system was patched and updated. A old out of date print driver can wreak hmm. havoc on actually getting things printed. So I would make sure my software was up to date first. Uh, I would then make sure my, I would get a monitor calibrator and I would make sure that that had the latest version of the software and that my monitor was calibrated for whatever I thought was the appropriate level of brightness. And what I tell people is for if without seeing your room, without seeing your space, without knowing what you're printing, when you get asked to choose the brightness value of your room, tell it it's between 80 and 100 lumens. In most cases, that gets people pretty close. So get that monitor calibrated. And it is 
not a one and done calibration either. Plan on recalibrating about every two weeks. And the first time you calibrate, you will see a significant change. Like you said, also the monitor got really dark. The monitor is also going to start to look kind of brown because the monitors are actually set for a, they use, emit more blue light and we actually need to calibrate into a, a little bit warmer light. So the monitor turns a slight bit brown the first time. After that, you'll toggle back and forth between a before and after picture and you may not see a difference, but know that things are happening in the background and it's actually working doing the calibration. So plan on doing that about every two weeks. Then get the most recent paper profile installed for your printer. And that is a uh, gets installed. And then at that point, you're ready to actually make, I think, your kind of your first print run test. And this is where I think the other place people make a huge mistake. They pick either uh, a really saturated image with lots of contrast to make the print. And I talked about how every device has a gamut. So if you pick an image that's way, way outside the gamut of what the paper can hold, Photoshop and the printer and the color management system has to do all sorts of work to actually compress those colors. And that's done through something called the uh, rendering intent. And so whether we use in photography, we normally use just perceptual or relative, but that's all about dealing with colors that the monitor can show or can't show. And how do they move to the printer, which can or can't print them. And people pick these crazy things to print where I know they're going to be out of gamut, these super saturated colors. So what I like to do is pick something that's more kind of a neutral print and something you would normally print. The other thing I watch people do is they're portrait photographers and they go start with a, a landscape they took. <laughs> so the thing you're normally going to print, start with that and pick kind of a neutral edit, nothing crazy, and print that on whatever kind of paper you're going to print on. And just see how that compares. Just see, is it in the ballpark? Because if it's not in the ballpark, we have a different problem. So maybe we have double color management. Like if the print's really magenta and purple, it's usually because it's being double color managed. So Photoshop's trying to manage the color and the printer's trying to manage the color. Um, but if it looks in the ballpark and looks close, we could take the next step. But I just find that people try to print something that's just crazy and they get frustrated at the start. So print something that's kind of more neutral. You don't have a lot of crazy saturated colors and then you'll know the actual workflow is correct. And then you can go back and make the adjustments later for all the other elements that come into play because that gamut is it's, it's a weird thing. And like luster paper and glossy papers hold more saturated colors than matte paper. And so if you're printing to a matte paper, your photos are going to look a little duller, but richer in color. Um, if you're working on a glossy paper, it might have more punch and contrast and hold saturation, but you don't preserve the delicacy of detail. And so that's why picking something and just kind of making sure you can get a baseline at least lets you know the calibration part's working. So that would be my initial starting point. Okay. Well, it's funny when you said that, I had a flashback to, I can't remember the name of the file, but it was the the uh, Adobe file. That she looked like Carmen Miranda, but had she like pentone pen yep. charts on her head and stuff. Yep. And that used to be kind of the the standard file because at least that way you were comparing with something that, because I, I think the other part of it is, the emotional side, like if you're really tied to a photograph and you you can't wait to see it printed, and then it doesn't come out looking the way you want, then there's that emotional side of, oh, the disappointment, not just of the technicalities of it not matching, but that didn't come out looking the way I expected for my favorite photograph. 
So I think, as you said, yeah. starting with something that's just sort of a maybe a little more generic. It's a good photograph, but not something that you're em- too emotionally tied to, so you don't get too disappointed if you don't like the results. Yeah, Bill At- Atkinson makes a. You can download it. He has it for it's free. It's all over the web. He built it and graciously let people uh, print with it. It has a bunch of skin tones, some fruit, a bunch of different things, and it's a print test mm. page. And so as you move from paper to paper, you can print his file. And it's got a pretty good gamut of what you might see in terms of up across all the different options. And then it's not your photo. So, yeah, you're not attached to it and you're not upset that it didn't work. And that's a, that's a great piece for that. Now, the other side of the coin, of course, is the printer itself. And, and without getting into, I know this is a whole other discussion, but just when someone's decided, okay, I'm going to, maybe I, I've had a printer which was, say, an entry-level printer and I want to graduate to the next level. I mean, it seems like... To me, there are so many options now with the you know ones that have many different colors of ink and large format versus smaller format. What what would you say if someone's again wanting to sort of progress to like that next level, not like a full blown you know forty eight inch printer or something, but a good size printer uh, that's going to give them what what sort of factors within that printer should they be looking at? Um, that's a great question, and I think that's uh, for a lot of people that is the piece. You start off with a cheap printer and you realize you do need to take that next step a couple of things come into play one is the archivability which is the longevity of the print so as photographers we want to make sure our prints last and if you're actually going to print things and give them to other people they're going to expect them to last and so that archivability is important and there in the world of printers there's two main kind of elements there's a dye printer and then there's pigment based and a pigment based printer will have a longer shelf life. It'll be the the latest Epson printers that just got announced about three or four days ago. Um, on archival paper, we're in the 200 to 400 year range. A 200 for color, 400 for black and white. Wow. Um, prior to that, we're in the 100 year range to 200 year range. Um, and how they do that is the Wilhelm Research Institute accelerates what will be normal viewing conditions under light to figure out when the color breaks down. So there's actually a third-party independent group that does all that testing. So it's not just Epson or Canon or HP saying what's going to happen. But archivability is, is one. The size of print you're going to make. And so if you normally are only ever going to print, say, 13 by 19 inches wide, you can save yourself several hundred dollars and not buy a 17-inch printer. And then you would outsource to MPIX or Bayphoto or somebody for the larger prints. But if you're going to print and you think you'll go to 17 or you think you'll stretch, you know, get the size printer that'll let you print the size you want. And even if you only print 17 by 22, six, seven, eight, nine times a year, it does not take long if the printer, you know, you're going to have it for three, four, five, six years to offset that cost difference between a 13 and a 17. So that's a, another consideration. Um, whether you print on roll paper or only on sheet paper. So certain printers have roll attachments, certain printers don't. It's usually cheaper in the long run to print on a roll, but then you have curled paper to deal with and things like that. So for the most part, people settle in on sheet printers. Um, And then how much space do you have? So there's a lot of printers out there that are 17-inch printers, but some of them are will fit on a desktop and other ones kind of need their own standing cart. So there's just different sizes like that. So the overall footprint. And then the other one is the, like I said, in the very beginning, ink is one of the things that ink cost is one of the things that drives people crazy. And the general rule of thumb is it's about a, for a fine art paper on really high end fine art paper, it's about a penny per square inch for the paper and about a penny per square inch for the surface of ink coverage. 
that drives down in overall cost the bigger the ink cartridge so because you can print longer on an ink cartridge so a printer that has a 50 mil ink cartridge versus an 80 millimeter versus like my one printer here will hold up to 700 milliliter so i my 80 millimeter ink cartridges are 56 dollars my 700 millimeter cartridges are 250 dollars so it's significantly cheaper if you can get a bigger ink cartridge so uh, that's the other one is what is the actual ink cartridge because sometimes the cheaper printer smaller cartridge because they know you're going to have to replace the cartridge more often so so that's the other uh, piece i would look at um, number of inks um, most of the printers now that it will be considered photograde printers are all in the somewhere between eight and eleven inks and they're all variations of CMYK. So even though it's an RGB-based printer and you don't have to change the CMYK, there are cyans, magentas, and grays that are in there. And occasionally they'll add in a yellow or a, an orange or a green or something just to help with some of those more hard colors for CMYK to print. Um, but in general, those are all going to be the same. And then ultimately it kind of comes down to price. And in the space where we're talking, we're really talking about two companies. We're talking about Epson and Canon. I mean, HP is kind of given up and moved back to corporate stuff. So we're talking about those two. And they each have a model kind of at the same kind of price range. There's a $700 model. There's a $1,200 model. The thing I would recommend you do is once you do your research and decide which one you want, there's always a rebate. And if there's not a rebate right now, it'll be there in a month. So there's always a... So you look at it, you're like $12.99 and then wait a month and there'll be a $300 rebate or $300 of paper. There's always some way for them to try to hook you into that. So that's the other piece. Beyond that, we get into some personal preference things that most people won't see, but like Canon has replaceable heads. You can replace your own print head if you have a problem. Um, but on a Canon, all the drop size are relatively the same. Epson has a print head that you can't replace yourself but their technology allows for variable size dots when the actual inkjet's printed. So it creates a different tonal palette and different gradation. Um, Epson currently has a deeper black than Canon does, just the pigment they're using because they're leapfrogging each other in generations for pigment and printers. And so if you're a black and white printer, I would look more right now at an Epson printer potentially because of that deeper black. A year from now, I might tell you the exact opposite <laughs> um, you know, in that regard. And so, but the big one comes down to that archivability and getting to the pigment-based ink, the size you're going to print on, because uh, those are the big, biggest, probably the biggest two factors. Now that that you kind of brought up the next thing I was going to ask, is there are some people that one of their big interests is black and white printing. And I know that I've done a little bit, and it, it can be fascinating to, to think about this color printing device you have how its ability to create these beautiful black and whites, does that change anything in terms of if, if that's someone's main goal in terms of the printer? I suppose it probably would perhaps more so with the paper. Two things around that. It does change your workflow a little bit. So both Canon and Epson have a black and white mode. Canon calls it a monochrome mode and Epson it's called the advanced black and white mode. So when you, if you're printing a neutral black and white, so you haven't split toned it or you haven't done any creative coloring in it, um, or added a, a like a sepia tone to it. Uh, you would do the monochrome printing out of the out of the printer. So in the Epson world, it'd be the advanced black and white. And what that does is it tells the printer to use the blacks and the grays and not any of the color to build the image. And so you get a much more true representation of a black and white image. If you let the 
ICC profile manager that uses all of those ink colors to build the black and white file. And oftentimes it has a little green magenta cast or a blue cast to it because it's that cyan and magenta and yellow inks are being used to make the black and white. So part of that is just making sure you're using the monochrome mode unless you need the color information from the split tone. Hmm. And in my own kind of taste, that's where I think one of the places that Epson excels is Epson spent a lot of time to build a really robust and uh, black and white engine into their print driver. Uh, in part is because the other thing that the way those two printers separate is there's a technology called a, a RIP, which is a raster image processor. And for those of you who've been in Photoshop or have printed a long time, we had PostScript printing and then we had RIP printers. Um, a guy named Roy Harrington has built a piece of software and has been around forever called a Quadtone RIP. And it talks directly to the Epson printers and allows you to go in and specify a percentage of each black ink and light gray ink to lay down to create the black and white image. And so you end up with this real granular level of control to create a black and white image if you use a Quadtone RIP. The Quadtone RIPs don't work with the Canon printers. They work with the Epson printers. And so that would be another one if somebody was exclusively black and white and going to that next level of black and white, I would have them take a long look at that if that was gonna be something they might be interested in or a direction they wanna go. Now, how does that impact from a Photoshop standpoint? Because before we talked about people saying that, that my print doesn't match because they're looking at things like the color. What would you do if, if so if you're preparing something to print in black and white, what kind of approach would you take in Photoshop to prepare the file? So I make the so my workflow is I make the final image look as best as possible, regardless of what I'm gonna print to. I try to get on screen in Photoshop, everything looks as good as possible. At that point, I move in and I soft proof to what I'm going to go out to. And so for those of people who have never soft proofed in, I think it was Photoshop 5.5, we got color management integrated into Photoshop. And from that, because Photoshop now became aware of all the profiles, they could soft proof, which meant take the ICC profile and try to have the screen simulate what the paper would look like. And so I use soft proofing to bring up the image in the kind of version of paper I'm going to print on. So Photoshop will actually make it, I call it making it look ugly. So if you're printing <laughs> on that paper, the colors wash it, everything does. And then you edit those adjustments for the paper. And those are called output adjustments. And they're specific to the paper you're printing to or to the media substrate you're printing to. And so for my workflow in Photoshop is I edit that black and white as good as I can. Then I turn on the soft proofing and I will edit the, the image to include a little adjustments for the paper and then I'll print it. Okay. What the soft proofing gets me is instead of having to print 15 times, I only have to print like five times to get to a final image. So it's not perfect, but that soft proofing piece gives me a sense of what that looks like. And in the case of why I was exclusively a black and white printer, you can build a profile that we talk about those ICC profiles. We can build an ICC profile that is exclusively for black and white. And you can use that for your soft proofing, uh, which is one of the things that uh, a lot of people who move into uh, Quadtone Rip or they use John Cone has a set of inks that will replace all your inks in your printer. If you're exclusively black and white, they're a beautiful set of inks. Profiles that are geared towards that ink set as well. And then Photoshop will simulate that under the under the, uh, the soft proofing, which is under the view menu, I think. And one of the things you said there that I think is is really interesting to me, and I, th I hope that everyone caught it, and I'll say it again, because you said something like it 
only means you have to print five times instead of <laughs> so that's reassuring to know that even experts in the field that's a, a part of the workflow or the expectation is it's not going to be you're not going to print once and go well perfect <laughs> yeah i, I it, it's funny when it happens i'm really excited <laughs> and when you get this is the other big tip i would have for people is i watch people chase their tail trying to find the perfect paper I recommend everybody have a luster paper and a matte paper, whatever you pick. If it's Epson's Legacy Fiber, if it's Handy Mule's Bereta, if it's Red River, I don't care. It doesn't matter. But pick two or three and just learn what those papers can do. Hmm. And then when you start to soft proof, you're like, oh, yeah, that paper looks really close to what I have on the screen with a lot of editing. Uh, because really what we're looking for when we soft proof is we're looking for changes in contrast, blocked up shadows saturation shifts and color shifts so i'm looking for skin tones that turned more red than they should be it's not going to show me exactly what the print looks like because it's not it's a screen that's the lights transmitting versus reflective there's enough differences there but if i can get it so it's in the ballpark then i can look at the print and sometimes it comes out and looks great and sometimes it's like okay well i'm close i need to go make this little tweak here or tweak here but yeah it's definitely a huge time saver and it's one of the things that I'm always amazed that I think what makes Impix and Bayfoot on those places do so well is they know their equipment and their technology and their space so well that when they get a photo from anybody that they can actually get it into their color space and get a pretty good rendering of it. And that become that's because it's the same equipment, mm -hmm. the same paper, the same process. They're not working with, you know, you don't call Impix and be like, hey, can you print this on 22 different papers? And they'll do it, but... It's because those are the only papers they print on. They won't print on something they don't have because they don't know it well. Yeah. And that's the same thing for the home printer. Use the one or two pieces of paper you have and, yeah. and it'll, it'll save you a headache. That's 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 great advice. So years ago, I had the opportunity to actually visit MPICS. And one of the things that was fascinating to me is they had their color correction department. And, and a couple of things caught my attention. One of them was the person who was taking us on a tour who obviously knew the background of his people. Now, I think there was like 12 of them sitting there on their computers. He asked the question, he said, how many of you have been here five years or less? And there was like, it basically got to the point where it was 10 years at least, everyone had been there at least 10 years. And the other part was, so an order would come in, they'd bring it up on their screen and they had this special dial device to like quickly change some settings and then the print would come back to them. So instead of going to some different person to sort of for quality control, it would go to the person that actually did the color correction. And I was like, that seems to make such good sense to close that loop to know that it's not just a one-time deal where they're going, well, that looks good to me. They get the print back and if necessary, they'll tweak it and do another one. And I thought that's that's pretty fascinating for a lab who's doing high volume to have that kind of dedication to make sure that the the quality is is what people are expecting. Yeah, and I think that's so great to hear because I, I, I think a lot of people send things out and they come back and they're okay. But if, yeah, if you get a good lab and get a good relationship with the lab, if you're outsourcing or not printing on your own, that makes all the difference in the world, knowing that that quality is there. And yeah, and not everybody out there does that. So Daniel, for someone who wants to take their printing to the next level and they're hearing your advice and they want to get more, where would someone come to find out more about the kind of services you offer, workshops and things like that? Um, so my uh, website is danieljgregory.com and uh, all my workshop information is up there. Uh, my studio is actually named Silly Dog Studios. So that's after my 
silly dog. <laughs> um, and so my uh, uh, partner and wife, uh, she's an herbalist and all that. So we have a bunch of stuff that happens at the studio up here. Um, so sillydogstudios.art is the kind of the piece for that. But yeah, danieljgregory.com has all of the photo stuff. On social media, it's Dan Greg Photo everywhere. So Instagram, Twitter, all those places um, is where you can find that. I'm actually just getting ready to release in the next month or so my 2020 and 20 about half of 2021's uh, workshop schedule. Um, and included in there is I have several uh, short, like one day printing session things, like how to choose a good paper. Um, and then I have several longer sessions where we actually come and you're at my studio and we actually do some pretty low level work on getting printing and getting calibrated and how you work through that process for that. And I've got black and white, I've got color, I've got shooting workshops. So I've got a nice kind of variety in there. So that, that schedule's coming up here pretty shortly. And uh, you can, if you hit my website, you can get on the mailing list and then we'll uh, add you to that. Awesome. Well, this has been really fantastic. I'm sure the listeners, especially if you've had any interest in printing, you've uh, certainly explained a lot of things very well of what people should expect. And I think uh, people will be very interested to perhaps take that printer out and clean the nozzles and uh, try a bit more printing with their device. Yeah, no, it's a like I said at the beginning, it's the one thing I've seen that makes all the difference in the world to become a better photographer faster. And you've spent the money on the printer. You might as well, might as well keep it happy and keep putting paper through it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Daniel. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Dave. Well, wasn't that an amazing episode? Daniel knows so much about the world of printing. It's amazing. And it was so great of him to share all of it. And as a reminder, his website is danieljgregory.com. You can find him on social media under Dan Greg Photo. And his podcast is called The Perceptive Photographer, which can be found on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tuning in to this episode. I really appreciate it. As always, please share this with your Photoshop using friends. And if you can leave a review, that would be awesome. I'm Dave Cross. See you next time. Please subscribe and tell your Photoshop using friends. Find us at talkingshop.show. This podcast is not authorized, endorsed, or sponsored by Adobe, publisher of Photoshop. <laughs>